All right. Thank you guys for that important message. And I think a lot of us in the room know the truth of that. Um, sometimes we are so speechless in trying to express to God what he means to us and how we do love him and exalt him. And uh, fortunately, he has the capacity when we don't have words to look in our hearts and get that. Um, why don't we take a moment to pray? So, Father, we do invite you to look into our hearts for a moment. We not only have praise for you, but we also have some conflict, some confusion. We have cares and concerns. And so we turn to you with all of that today. Our confidence in you as well as our concerns. We confess we're not God that you are and we pray that we'd be who we are and that you'd be who you are in us and through us and around us. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, we're continuing a series of studies and conversations about uh, what, are, what are the building blocks. If you wanted to build a life that is like Christ, what are the building blocks that you would use to get that job done? And uh, today we're talking about how having a personal relationship with God is so important, so key, so essential to building that kind of life. Perhaps you saw in the New York Times uh, just a few days ago the story that they carried about Dr. Francis Collins. President Obama had appointed him as the director of the National Institutes of Health uh, back in the summer. Uh, if you're not familiar with Dr. Collins, he uh, has been a man of quite renown. He not only has his M.D., but he also has a Ph.D. in biology. He's done a lot of research and been responsible for some important breakthrough kinds of findings with respect to uh, genetics. Been on the cover of Time and some other magazines, has international acclaim about all that. And uh, Obama appointed him to this position. He was unanimously affirmed by the U.S. Senate, but not without controversy. Because, you see, Dr. Collins is an evangelical Christian. Now, he hasn't always been. He tells in his own story that uh, he grew up in what he calls a nominal Christian family. That is to say, he kind of felt like they were Christian in name, but not so much Christian in practice. And when he later went to university and on to graduate studies, uh, he began to practice more of an agnosticism that later turned into an atheism. And he says that on one occasion when he was visiting with one of his patients who was uh, in a serious state, in a, a declining and dying kind of state, that the patient inquired of him about his own belief or faith in God. And he said it occurred to him really for the first time that he had not given serious thought or investigation about the claims of God and faith in Christ and so on that he had been kind of exposed to as a child 
And he felt like the very least he could do was give it some serious investigation. Well, long story short, he uh, began to be turned in the direction of God uh, with respect to the cosmological argument that some of you will remember we talked about four weeks ago. And particularly as that is uh, described in C.S. Lewis's writings of mere Christianity. And uh, he not only became a Christ follower, but passionately so. He now speaks in churches all over the country. He's written a bestseller Christian book. And all of that has proven to be controversial to his colleagues, who are all scientists. In fact, in the New York Times article of just a few days ago, one of those scientists, maybe lacking a little courage because he did it anonymously, said such outspoken religious commitment is a sign of mild dementia. Well, I I find that very interesting commentary. Here he is, totally respected by his colleagues with regard to his scientific training and his scientific capabilities and his scientific work. But uh, in their mind, is somewhat discredited and undermined by his outspoken, passionate, religious experience. What brings that kind of reasoning, that kind of thinking about? Where are you with respect to not just is there a God, but that he's personal, that he interacts with people, that he has relationship? Where are you with that? Several years ago, I was serving as a pastor in another church, and we had a group of kids going to summer camp. And it just so happened that right at that same time, we had a new youth pastor join our staff. And uh, this was our new youth pastor's first experience with the kids and first experience with really a youth trip. And we were going across to another state. It's going to be about a nine-hour journey. And uh, we had a great week lined up before us, and uh, I had volunteered to be one of the adults to go, and uh, we had a great time. It was a powerful, I think, defining kind of experience during the week. And so on the last day, it's time to leave, and we're loading the buses, and I am absolutely exhausted. It had been one of those really jam-packed kinds of weeks, and we got a nine-hour drive on a Saturday, and I'm supposed to speak on Sunday, and so I was really feeling the pressure to get a nap Because I was going to have to do some study and stuff, as you can imagine, on a youth bus uh, somewhere en route back to uh, our church. And so I immediately went right to the back of the bus and got myself a pillow and kind of uh, wedged myself into a window. And the kids were coming on the bus and all the luggage was coming on. We had two buses. And, uh, you know, I just felt comfortable with our new youth pastor who had been doing such a great job all week that she was going to do what youth pastors do, and that's the head count and the luggage count and all that kind of stuff. So pretty soon we were pulling out of the parking lot. We drove a little bit across town. Then we got on the interstate, and we had been about, I don't know, 20 minutes down the road, and I was almost unconscious. I was almost totally sound asleep. And this loud, almost audible thought, voice, if you will, came into my mind. And I'm in a stupor. I mean, I am out. 
And suddenly I hear, Brian Greer is not on the bus. (laughs) And I sat there for just a second in the sleepless, sleepy kind of state. And then I shot up like a rocket and I shouted out over all the youth noise on the bus. And I said, is Brian Greer on this bus? Brian's just a 13-year-old little guy, very quiet, uh, easy to miss. And we all got to looking around, and Brian was not on the bus. So I, I told the bus driver, you got to pull up next to the other bus, which was ahead of us, and i got to talk to them. And so we pull up alongside the other bus, and I'm yelling from one bus to the other to our youth pastor who was on the other one. And I said, is Brian Greer on that bus? And they got to looking around, and she yelled back, no. <laughs> and I'm like, oh, no. So we pull over on the side of the interstate and I get out and our youth pastor gets out and we're meeting between the buses and we kind of agree my bus is going to stay you take that other bus and go back and find Brian we'll wait right here until you get back and so about an hour later they come back and sure enough they had found Brian he was sitting on the curb right in front of the building from which we had pulled away from apparently had forgotten something in his room dashed back to the room to get it And when he got back to where we were the buses were gone And so he joined us, and we got him home safely, and, you know, no parents killed us or anything like that. So it was awesome. But here's the point. What kind of God pays attention with wars and diseases and famines and uh, genocide and all kinds of stuff going on in the world? Six billion people. What kind of God wakes a slumbering pastor out of his stupor and says, you left a kid. (laughs) That's a pretty personal God. That's a big God that can pay attention to all those things and yet zero in on what would seemingly be insignificant on on the stage of the world. And maybe you hear that story and you go, oh, man. I didn't know I was going to come to church and the speaker was going to give me like a fish story, you know, and he caught one so big and all that kind of thing. Who can believe that kind of thing? It happened. I wasn't doing head counts. I had no reason whatsoever to think about who's on and who's off the bus. I certainly had not even paid attention, you know, visually who got on and who got off. I absolutely was intersected. By the person and the presence of God in a way that he could communicate to me. That's the kind of personal God he is. And I I don't expect everyone to readily and easily accept that. Because some great minds through the centuries have grappled with this at great length. So, most of you are aware that uh, Albert Einstein, arguably one of the greatest minds of the last century, was named by Time Magazine Person of the Century, and he was responsible for a lot of scientific breakthrough. And uh, by his own admission, said, I do not want to believe in God. Not only I don't, I don't want to. But he had a problem. In his uh, work with his theory of relativity and his calculations, 
it became, it became apparent to him if his calculations were correct, then it all pointed to the fact that there must be a beginning to the universe. And that was disappointing to him because it implied to him if there is a beginning, there's someone who began it. And that's probably something, someone like what all those religious people call God. And so he was very careful through the years to give all kinds of disclaimers. I don't believe in the kind of God that these people believe in or that those people believe in or that group over there believes in. Uh, I would say that there is some kind of force that kind of thrust everything into being. And that's about all I can understand about that great mind and he shared on another occasion that his big stumbling block one of the reasons why he just could not swallow there being a god like a lot of people think of god particularly as a personal god was because of the problem of pain and suffering of evil and suffering ever been an issue for you Why is there evil in this world? Why is there suffering in this world? If there is a God who is personal, who cares about people, interacts with people, who is good and benevolent, then wouldn't it make sense for a good God to get rid of bad stuff? Therefore, since bad stuff is in the world, there must not be a God, or at least not a personal type of God. In fact, some have concluded human suffering is just pointless if there's a god then why doesn't god do something about suffering and i would say to you at least two things about that kind of thinking and that kind of question the first is this just because we can't see the point doesn't mean it's pointless there's all kinds of things that are real and we can't see them All kinds of things that are important and significant. And we can't see them. And I contend and suggest to you today that there are all kinds of activities and eternal purpose-filled reasons behind things that we can't understand. We can't comprehend. We, We miss the point. And so just because we can't see the point doesn't mean that it's pointless. And secondly, I'd say... God is doing something about suffering. Now, what might that be? He certainly isn't eliminating and eradicating it. Well, here's the deal. This kind of question has the assumption behind it. That God, if if there is a God who created all that there is, he, he must have created it with moralistic and physical perfection. In fact, I think I've heard the Bible say, with every act of creation, God said, that's good. And he did say that's good. He didn't say that's perfect. But he did say it's good. But you also know the rest of the story, and this is the primary purpose behind all of God's creation, is that he was not about creating some kind of masterpiece of perfection, He was rather creating an environment in which you could live, in which I 
could live for the purpose of our potentially loving him and having relationship with him. That is the reason that God created this entire universe and this little planet called, that we call Earth so that you and I would have a sustainable kind of environment. And as we live in this environment, perhaps someday at some point choose to know and to love and to live with God. Now, if God's going to take that kind of cosmic gamble on us and, and see if we will choose him, because that's kind of the basis of love. Love is not something that you're coerced about. It's something that you choose. Then that means he gives us free will. And if he gives us free will, that means we not only have the potential to choose good, we have the potential to choose evil. We not only have the potential to do what is right, we have the potential to do what is wrong. And we do choose evil and wrong a lot of the time. But it goes with the territory of our being free will beings that have a potential to choose him or reject him. And that's the only way that love can happen. If he only made us so that we would choose him and choose his will and choose his ways, then we are not people. We are robots. Pre-programmed. So God doesn't magically show up on the scene and eliminate suffering, but he does mysteriously redeem suffering so that it works for good. That's how big, that's how great, that's how good a God he is. He's not going to eliminate it because he's not going to eliminate our free will. But he will be at work to redeem it. Romans 8.28 says it this way, God causes everything to work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purposes for them. So here's the deal. You choose to know God, to love God, to follow God, to do life with God, then one of his promises to you is this. I'll not waste any of your suffering, any of your hard times. I will make all the hard times that happen in life work for good somehow for you as you do life with me. Now, that's pretty powerful. And we could spend the rest of our time just identifying and uh, verbalizing testimonies about how God has intersected our hard times, our challenges, our pain, our difficulties, our sufferings. And he has somehow redeemed that and made it important, made it work for good. Classic case in point is the crucifixion of Christ. Onlooking world sees that. What's the point? In the most moral, good man that ever lived, dying this horrific death on a cross. It seems pointless to me, an onlooking world would say. And yet God was up to something very important, eternally concerned. And he took that horrific act and made it work for the salvation of all humanity. And that's just the beginning of that kind of redemptive work that he does with all of us. In our circumstances. Now, I want you to note that the sufferings of Jesus were extraordinary. I know you know the stories, 
And I know they may even seem uh, kind of routine to you after you've rehearsed them so many times through the years. But I want to encourage you to take just a little different look at the sufferings of Jesus today because it gives us a glimpse of this personal nature of God and how good he is. Now, if you've done any reading through the years about martyrs, martyrs of any cause, you've read, uh, you know, rather inspiring stories about men and women who, with respect to their cause, whether it was Christianity or something else, would die for their cause and many times die with a sense of serenity and peace and confidence and defiance about their tormentors and so on like that. Right? But it was not so with Jesus. You read the Gospels about Jesus's sufferings. And you read nuanced stories about how he didn't want to go through it. And praying prayers about, oh, Father, if there's any other way this can happen, if you could take this cup from me. But nevertheless, I want to do exactly what you want me to do. And when he gets into the Garden of Gethsemane, he tells his friends, his disciples, I am so sorrowful. I am so saddened. I am so burdened. I'm about to die. Then he goes off and prays. And apparently a physical kind of shock is overtaking his body because he's so intense and he's so into what's about to take place. He is sweating as it were drops of blood. And you know that later he is scourged, beaten within an inch of his life. You know that he is jeered and ridiculed and mocked. You know that he has this crown placed upon his head. He's nailed to a cross and he hangs there suffocating and bleeding to death. It's a horrific death. But the fact of the matter is there's a lot of people that have died as horrific, if not more so, kind of death. So what we're talking about that is extraordinary about the sufferings of Jesus is this. You get a clue in John's Gospel, the first chapter, when John is, is informing us, he's revealing to us that Jesus has always been. That Jesus is God. That in fact, God is a tri-person, triune, trinity, three persons in one God. We covered all this in detail the first week, but here's the point with all that. For all eternity, the Father and Son have only known intimacy, absolute unity. The embodiment of love, the picture of that kind of uh, eternal embrace. And for Jesus to go to the cross and assume the penalty for all the sins that you and I in all uh, of time and humanity have done is to, in effect, separate for the first time in eternity the Son from the Father. That was his unique, extraordinary suffering. 
you know, scourgings, crosses, nails. Okay, but I don't want to be separated from the Father. Because, as the Bible will make clear, that's hell. Now, whether you and I can ever fully make sense of some of the suffering we go through or some of the suffering someone we care about goes through, whether or not we can ever fully make sense of some of that, one thing we can conclude when we look at the cross of Jesus These things are not happening because God doesn't love us. He does love us. And He's demonstrated that without question and unmistakably for all time. Well, someone else raises the question, okay, so... You know, there's redemptive things that happen with pain and suffering, and some of it we won't know, and some of it we won't get the point. But how can a loving God judge people and send them to hell? You ever raise that question? You ever had that conversation? I've had that conversation frequently. If God is real, if God is personal, if God is love, then how can He judge people and send them to hell? I mean, Doesn't the nature of love say, I'm going to forgive you and I'm going to accept you? What's this judging and condemning thing? Well, what we have to understand and keep in mind is that God is the one that created. God is the one that brought everything into being that there is. God is the one who determines what's right, what's wrong, what's good, what's bad, what's holy, what's evil. He gets to call all those shots as God. And at the same time, he is both loving and just. And so when we make choices exercising our free will... In ways that are evil, in ways that are wrong, in ways that are busted. He loves us, but must also respond to us with justice. You say, well, I just don't get how someone can say he loves you, but be so angry and have wrath towards you. And here's the reality, here's the fact of the matter. Wrath isn't the opposite of love. Hate is. And the final form of hate is indifference. So think about it this way. Let's assume that maybe you're a parent and you have a child that you love deeply. And if someone began to act in and around your child's life in a way that was ruining his life, you would be angry about that. You would have wrath about that. Even if it was your own child ruining his own life, you would become angry about that because you love that child so much and you have so many hopes and aspirations for what that child's life can be. If you didn't care... If you didn't have those intense feelings about that, 
then you would both be indifferent and non-loving. And so God cares tremendously. He cares more than you care about how well your life goes. And when you make choices for your life to go poorly, it breaks his heart and he becomes angry about evil and unjust ways. And he responds accordingly. Now, Psalm 145 uh, describes that dual experience that happens simultaneously. The Lord is righteous in all his ways, loving toward all he has made. The Lord watches over those who love him, but all the wicked he will destroy. He goes right hand in hand. His wrath and his anger come right out of his love. Not out of hate. He cares. Hate would mean he didn't care. Now, one Yale theologian has pointed out that if I don't believe there is a God who will eventually put all things right, I will take up the sword and I will be sucked into that endless vortex called retaliation. For people that don't believe that there is a God who will someday square up the books and make justice prevail over all the injustices, for those people, they nurture a retaliatory spirit. They nurture violence and aggressive acts toward other people. But for the one who has a hope in a just God who will someday settle all the accounts then we can let go of that vengeance. We can let go of that retaliation because we have hope and confidence that a good God's going to take care of it someday. So, how can a loving God judge people, send them to hell? Well, He's both love and justice. Wrath is an expression of His love. And hell, after all, is our being separated from Him. Now, a lot of people have come to kind of make a caricature of hell. And so it's this kind of picture. Um, God's just kind of, you know, the cosmic cop in the sky just waiting to bust you. He's got a sin gun pointed, you know, radar kind of thing to see when you break and violate one of His standards. And he gives you a certain amount of time to respond to him. And if you don't come clean with him and, and square stuff up with him within a certain amount of time, then poof, off to hell you go. And it's also this kind of picture of, but, you know, what happens, God, when these people are like being cast off to hell and they're yelling, oh, please forgive me, have mercy on me, I don't want to go. And you're like, I don't care, you're gone, out of here. See, that's like the worst caricature you can give of this very serious issue called evil and sin. God is our greatest good. God is our greatest blessing. God is our life. God is our hope, our peace. We come to Him and we, we find, we experience, we're able to live in love. 
We become our highest potential when we are face-to-face with God and doing life with God. To choose otherwise is to choose a trajectory, not in God's direction, but in my own direction, in my own will, in what makes sense to me. And in our modernistic thinking, particularly in this Western world, it's almost incomprehensible to us that someone else gets to say what's right and what's wrong, what's good and what's bad. After all, I determine that. I'm in control. And God's just supposed to be, you know, this kind of fairy in the sky that just loves me and forgives me when I screw it up. But the fact of the matter is, God says, here's, here's the deal. You want to have true life, go with me. You'll have life. You'll have everything I've ever dreamed of for you and destined you for. But you have free will. And if you choose to go another direction, you choose to go away from me, then I'm going to call after you. I'm going to woo you for seasons in your life. But there will come a time, Romans 1, that I will just give you up to your desires if that's what you want. And so, friends, what we're talking about with hell is that An individual reaches the end of life and they just continue the same trajectory that their life has been on a course for all their days. It's not God sending anybody anywhere. We already stand condemned and busted. And he says, but I love you so much. I'm going to incarnate myself in the person of Christ. I'm going to pay the penalty of your sins, I'm going to redeem you back to myself if you will do life with me by faith in Christ. You choose another way, then that's the way you go for all eternity. And being away from him for all eternity, the Bible calls hell. So, C.S. Lewis said it this way. Hell is the ultimate monument to human free will. It's the ultimate monument to human free will. You get to choose. And he said, there really are only two kinds of people. There are those who will say to God, thy will be done. And then there are those to whom God will say, thy will be done. So... How do you respond to that? Will you trust Christ? Will you hear today this calling, this wooing, this invitation for you to come to him, to be forgiven, to be touched, to be embraced, to be loved, to be restored from all that this life tears down in your life? Will you engage him? With all of that. And if so, will you do then what every relationship requires? There's not a relationship in the world that doesn't require some communication. If I'm going to have a relationship with you or anybody, I've got to have some communication. 
I've got to have some trust. It's going to be based in love. And there will be some level of enjoying one another. Now, with respect to God and how we get at that with Him, we sometimes refer to these as practices. And we've been talking to you about what's going on in your small group these days. Which, if you haven't connected one, this is the perfect week to do it. Because this week, we're going to begin to introduce some uh, tools to you that are going to help you assess and see, you know, where am I with all this? And then we'll help you to identify steps you want to take to build a better relationship with the living God. So if I'm going to communicate with him, I've got to begin to figure out this thing about prayer and meditation and journaling. I mean, it's just communication. That's all it is. If I'm going to trust him, then I've got to learn how to have confidence in him. Be able to bank on, if he says it, I can count on it. If I'm going to love him, then how do I go about prioritizing him and deferring to him and sacrificing for him and serving him? I mean, that's what love's all about. That's what you do with a spouse or children or or other people that you love. And how are we going to go about enjoying each other? And things like worship and celebration and praise and so on, we could go are some of the ways that we go about enjoying Him. Will you pray with me about these things? Let's bow and close our eyes for just a moment. So, Father, you know what big questions these are about evil and suffering and judging and condemning and hell and so on. And I pray that your Spirit has communicated well with each heart. That that you've been able to kind of speak into our stupor, into our sleepiness, and awake us to the fact that we may be left behind if we don't get on with you. So I pray for my friend in the house today or listening to this later. That they would take a risk. That they would take a step of trust. That they would turn in your direction and turn away from what has been. And that they would know life in Christ. We pray in His name. Amen. Amen.